0: 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles, carried away to these uh, dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are diversities of ministry, differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to each one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. Now here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is bringing up the issue of what many people call spiritual gifts. uh, Particular gifts or graces given by the Holy Spirit, poured out upon his people, given for the benefit of all. And if you notice this list that we read through, that Paul described many of these gifts, they have a miraculous character to them, many of the gifts do. Uh, A gift of prophecy, to be able to uh, say a word that's from God, sometimes predicting the future, something... Uh, supernatural in knowledge, supernatural in wisdom, working in miracles, gifts of healings. We see this on many different levels. John simply, or excuse me, Paul simply talking about this dynamic of God giving supernatural gifts. And we sort of ended with verse 11 last time, emphasizing this idea that Paul is bringing out the idea that though there's so many different gifts and they work so differently, right, yet it's all the same Holy Spirit giving them, and they're all supposed to work together in the body of Christ. Now, since many of these gifts have a miraculous character to them, a very valid issue has been raised in the hearts and minds of many Christians who think that some of these gifts, notably the ones that are miraculous in character, some of these gifts are no longer being given by God today to the church. There are many people who believe that the gift that the days of miraculous gifts or enablings has passed from the church. That that was something that God gave, uh, perhaps in the very earliest days of the church, to give a particular blessing, maybe to give particular evidence to those who were preaching the gospel. But that ended a long, long, long time ago. This is an issue that's greatly divided the body of Christ, both theologically and spiritually. There are some who think, those who believe, uh, that all the gifts are for today... Now, all those people, or typically those people are called Charismatics or Pentecostals. Some people think that those people are just deceived by the devil. Then you've got those who think that those some of the gifts are no longer being given today, well, they think, well, they're unspiritual, they're dead. And it's been the cause of a lot of division, a lot of controversy within the church. So since we're in this chapter talking about this, I need to just make a few remarks before we jump into verse 12 and continue along in the text. You should know that Calvary Chapel churches are often respected for their biblical balance when it comes to the gifts of the Holy Spirit and their church and their place, I should say, in church life. A lot of people, uh, I think, get off on one end or another extremes in the gifts of the Spirit. Some people believe that God no longer gives miraculous gifts to the church, and while we certainly believe that he does, other people believe that those miraculous gifts should be made the centerpiece of church life. And Calvary Chapel churches believe that the gifts are for today, but they're not to be the centerpiece of the church. The Word of God is to be the centerpiece of the church, and because of this, Calvary Chapels have sometimes been seen as a too Pentecostal for the Baptists and too Baptists for the Pentecostals. You know, as if we're like Penabaptists or <laughs> Um But there's something you got to say about that. That's pretty important. Balance, in and of itself, is meaningless. Unless it's a biblical balance. You you shouldn't just find two extreme positions and then figure whatever's in the middle there is the truth. No. We're not looking for a balance between truth and heresy. No. We're looking for a biblical balance, a biblical uh, based balance of of what the Word of God really uh, promotes here. Now, First, got to say, if you're discussing this issue of whether or not the gifts are for today, you need to begin with understanding the issue. Let's understand this carefully. Virtually no Christian believes that all of the gifts of the Spirit have ceased in the church today. For example, one of the gifts of the Spirit is the gift of teaching. I don't think you're going to find very many Christians who believe that the gift of teaching has ceased from the church today, though you sit in some churches and you wonder. You know, it's like, wh- where is it? And so you're not going to find Christians who believe that all of the gifts of the Spirit are not being given by God today. What you'll find is Christians who believe that some of the gifts of the Spirit are no longer being given today. And of course, it's the gifts that are of a miraculous nature that are the gifts that are in dispute. Now, therefore, many people divide up the gifts into different categories. A common way to divide the gifts is you divide them into the communicative gifts, the miraculous gifts, uh, and then maybe the administrative gifts, uh, so on and so forth. And a lot of times, uh, with this thinking, people will say that the miraculous gifts have died out. The communicative gifts, those remain. The administrative gifts, they remain. The miraculous gifts, those were revoked or have died out or whatever. Yet it's important to observe that when you start dividing up the gifts into these categories, you're not making biblical distinctions. Nowhere does the Bible say these gifts are administrative, these gifts are communicative, these gifts are miraculous. The Bible never splits them up into categories like that. The Bible always freely intermixes the gifts. And so I'm just trying to say that if you want to section off one set of gifts given by God and say they're no longer given by God today, you're the one doing the sectioning. God hasn't done it. You're applying an artificial division upon the Scriptures. So, more accurately, the question would be, are all of the gifts of the Spirit for today, are some of them no longer being given by God? After all, the teachers who go out and teach that the miraculous gifts of the Spirit are not being given today, they believe that they have the gift of teaching, And so they believe that some of the gifts are being given. So what does the Bible say about the continuation of all the gifts of the Spirit? Well, let me just give you some of the passages of scriptures that I would say definitely support this idea. Mark chapter 16, verses 17 and 18, Jesus said, And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Jesus has said that miraculous signs will follow those who believe. Now, he wasn't giving a series of criteria by which you know those who truly believe. That's where this idea of snake handling comes in, right? Uh, And uh, that's not biblical, but Jesus was uh, in a very simple and straightforward promise. In context, he was giving promises to those out spreading the gospel and those who believe on his name, and these miraculous signs would follow them. I don't see any time limit on this. I don't see Jesus, you know, this coupon expires, uh, you know, eighty, seventy, 70 or whatever you want, A.D. 100 or when the New Testament, doesn't say. there's just nothing in there. Any sort of expiration date on that promise is purely artificial in its application on it. Or how about this, in Acts chapter 2 verse 33, Peter preaching says, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Well, what was it that they were seeing and hearing? They were seeing miraculous gifts of God in action. They were seeing people speak in tongues and and just uh, showing forth miraculous gifts of God. That's what they were seeing. And Peter said that what you're seeing and hearing right now is the promise of the Holy Spirit, right? That's what they were seeing. Now, later in the same sermon, Peter says, For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. It seems to me that instead of putting an expiration date on this promise of the miraculous, Jesus is deliberately saying that it's open to everybody who would call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, I just think that's one of the most clear examples. Let me read it to you again. Again, he's speaking about the promise that they're seeing in front of them, the promise of miraculous occurrences within the body of Christ. He says, for the promise is to you, that's his immediate hearers, and your children, and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. It seems to me case closed. Then how about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verse 12 Paul writes and he says even so you since you are zealous for spiritual gifts let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel In other words Paul makes a connection not just in that passage in 1 Corinthians 14:12 but throughout the book of First Corinthians that the goal of spiritual gifts is edification Now one of the big arguments of those who say that the miraculous gifts has ceased from the church today is they say that the reason why God gave miraculous gifts was to prove something. In other words, the apostles would preach the gospel, then they would do miracles, and everybody would say, oh, I know you're preaching the true gospel because you just did some miracles. But that's not the primary reason for the miraculous gifts. The primary reason for the miraculous gifts are to bless the body of Christ. Now, can I just ask you a simple question? Does the body of Christ need blessing today? Yeah. Absolutely it does. I don't think it's any diminished from what it was in the days of the apostles. And if the need is still there, the gift is still there. Friends, the natural, consistent testimony of the New Testament is that the miraculous gifts described in the New Testament have not been retracted. No one with a fresh reading of the Scriptures could ever come to such an understanding. I'm convinced of it. I'm convinced that you couldn't just put a Bible in front of somebody, have them read through it and say, oh no, we know that's not for today. Again, because there's no expiration date. There's no time limit. You have to read that into the text. There's absolutely no indication in the New Testament that these miraculous gifts would die out when the apostles died out. There's no distinction made between sign gifts or miraculous gifts and other gifts in the New Testament. They always come as a package Little is said about the continuation of all the gifts, because I think it was just a given among the apostles. I mean, somebody might say, well, where does it specifically say in the Bible that these miraculous gifts would continue? Well, I would point them to Acts chapter 2, among other places that we just saw. But I, I just don't think it was a big issue to the apostles. I think you could have just as well asked the apostles, where's the scriptural evidence that somebody can be saved beyond the time of the apostles? Prove it to me. And you kind of go, well, I don't. it was just a given. Why would they spend their time writing about it? It was just simply a given. Now, why is it that some Christians believe that some gifts of the Holy Spirit, especially the miraculous gifts, are no longer given by God today? Why do they believe it? I mean, if I stand before you here and say, gee, it's so obvious from the scriptures, friends, then why do some people not agree with me on this? Are they unspiritual? No. Are they dumb? No. I just think that their thinking is clouded by a few biases. First of all, I think they have a wrong understanding of history. I think that they believe that the miraculous gifts actually did die or cease when the apostles died. Friends, history proves they did not. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. I think they have a wrong understanding of passages like 1 Corinthians 13, 8, which we'll take a look at next week, which says that tongues will cease, and we'll talk about that next week when we get into it, but I think it's a very erroneous understanding that some people have of that passage. I think they have a wrong understanding of Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 says that God bore witness with signs and wonders and various miracles by the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And again, their idea here is that the only real reason that the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit were given were to authenticate God's revelation. And they say there's no longer a need for that. We have the Bible. There's no longer a need to authenticate God's revelation. And they say that's God's reason for miracles to authenticate, to put a stamp of approval so you can know who's really speaking from God. Now, friends, if miracles authenticate revelation, if a miracle happens and you know it's from God, then, friends, we're in a lot of trouble. Because the Bible and experience tells us that false prophets and Satan himself can and do perform authenticating miracles. It's true, my friends. You know, there are people who can do psychic phenomenon and things like that that is just unexplainable. And then they go out and and give you a message that's straight from the pit of hell. Well, they got a miracle, don't they? It must be from God, right? I don't think so. If you want to get even more specific, the Bible says that when the Antichrist, this great political and social and economic ruler that the Bible says is coming in the very last days, the Bible says that when he arises to power, he will do so using lying signs and wonders. Friends, it's a wrong way to think, to think that the miraculous or the supernatural always authenticates the truth. And I would say it goes against what the Bible reveals the primary purpose of miracles were. You know, when Jesus went around doing miracles, do you think it was to prove who he was? Now, he allowed the miracles to bear witness of himself. He says that specifically. But I don't think that was the primary reason. If the primary reason was to prove who he was, listen, Jesus, I would have done better than healing a few blind people and lepers. You know, go to Rome, right? Go to the media capital of the world. And do them in front of the movers and shakers, not in obscure Galilean villages. Get it straight, Jesus. No, do you know the primary reason why Jesus did miracles? To show the love of God to needy people. Here's a blind man, and I want to show the love of God to him. Friends, I'm not trying to say that miracles don't... uh, firm up or or give evidence that God is at work. They certainly do. But friends, that was not the primary reason for miracles. As a matter of fact, Jesus condemned those who sought to authenticate his message by miraculous signs. He said it's an evil and an adulterous generation that seeks after a sign. Friends, miracles are an insufficient evidence of authentic revelation. So friends, I don't think it just buys the fact that that God's reason for miracles was to uh, give credence to the truth, and now that we have the New Testament, we don't need miracles anymore. So, friends, um, one other thing I would just add on this point before we move on, or or to to continue on, I, I think we could say that the history of Christianity also demonstrates beyond any doubt that the gifts of the Spirit did not pass away when the apostles died. Um. I've read the writings of the early church fathers, and I've read their comments relevant to this point. They talk about miraculous gifts in their own day. They do, plain and simple. That's all there is to it. And some people, you know, just miss this point. Let me read to you a quote from a a fellow who believes this very strongly. And uh, he wrote in a book that he wrote called The Charismatics, and this is a quote from his book. He says, By the second century, the apostles were gone and things were changed. Alva McLean said, When the church appears in the second century, the situation as regards the miraculous is so changed that we seem to be in another world. The apostolic age was unique, and it ended. History says it, Jesus says it, theology says it, and the New Testament itself attests to the fact. Well, I mean, we could talk a lot about what the Bible says, and we already have about this issue. But friends, uh, my education is as, uh, as in history and in historical studies And I can just tell you flat out, if you just look for the historical evidence, I don't know what this guy's talking about. Because you have writers from the second and third and fourth century attesting to the presence of miraculous gifts in the church in their day. I don't know what this guy's talking about. If you're really interested in just the specific passages, I've compiled them all and and listed them, and, and it's incredibly persuasive. You just see a universal line. Actually, it wasn't until the middle of the fourth century that Christians started believing that the gifts had died out. And I know we're getting on in time here, and I, I don't know. I hope I'm not boring you to tears here, but this is very interesting to me. Do you know why Christians began to say that the gifts had died out? It's so typical. It's so today. You know why? Because a bunch of wackos started going crazy with the gifts of the Spirit. You had a bunch of what you might call today hyper-Pentecostals who were swinging from the chandeliers and handling snakes and rolling in the aisles and foaming at the mouth. I mean, I'm putting it in modern day terms, but essentially that's what they were doing. Oh, and this prophecy and that prophecy, and they were whacked out. And you know what? The church rightly condemned those people. And then everybody said, see, when you believe in the miraculous for today, that's what happens to you. And everybody said, let's not touch it. When you study the history of the church, you want to know one of the things that you find? Oftentimes the greatest enemies of the miraculous works of the Holy Spirit are those who pretend to be its greatest friends. Because they bring great discredit on the work of the miraculous in the church. So today, I don't blame people. Oh my gosh, when you... You know, you just hear, you know, the gal calls into the Christian television station and she's rejoicing because her poodle's barking in an unknown tongue. (laughs) Who's going to tell you? You're nuts, lady! That's not God! That's not the Holy Spirit! And it just makes everybody say, yeah, see, there's those wackos. And you know, she is wacko, let's face it. But do you see how it brings a discredit upon the genuine miraculous work? And then the other great enemy we have of this, I'm really getting on my soapbox now. The other great enemy we have of the miraculous work of God in the church is those who feel that they must manufacture it or promote it. You know, miracle service, miracles every night at seven. (laughs) Well, let's just hope that God decides there's going to be some miracles there. But I'll tell you something, whether or not God decides it, there's going to be some quote-unquote miracles going on there, right? Because you can't let the crowd down. After all, truth and advertising, you've advertised miracles. And people aren't content just to say, hey, we believe in the miraculous works of God. Let's let Him do it. Right? Let's let Him do it. Lord, whatever you want to do in our midst, you want to heal somebody? You want to speak a word of supernatural wisdom or knowledge to somebody? You want to speak a prophetic word? That, whatever, Lord, you're in control. It's up to you. But Lord, if you just want to do it some other way and bless our hearts in some other way, we're open to that too. It's all yours, God. Instead of him, oh, we've got to prime the pump, we've got to get things going, we've got to get things hopping around here, let's manufacture something. No, thank you. Just let the Lord do it. Be open to whatever God wants to do, but be open to whatever God wants to do, not whatever you want Him to do. Are we ready to start talking from the Bible here? Verse 12. For as the body in one and as many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and all have been made to drink into one Spirit. For in fact the body is not one member, but many. And You know, I don't know how much of this was just the unique inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and how much of this was the Holy Spirit using Paul's brilliant mind, But this is a brilliant illustration of how the church works together. Paul is going to use the illustration of the church working together. And when I say the church, I mean the people in the church, the organism of the church working together. He's using the illustration now of a body, of a human body. And he says, listen, we're all one body together. And the first thing he says is, this isn't a goal to achieve. Paul doesn't say, okay, Christians, let's all be one body. He says, you are. Now, some Christian bodies are comatose. (laughs) Some Christian bodies are like epileptics, and they're jerking around all the time. Some Christian bodies are strong in some area, weak in other, but some Christian bodies are walking the walk and talking the talk like they should. But friends, you see, Paul is just saying you were all baptized by the Spirit. You're one body, but you're many members. Friends, think about your body just for a moment. Every cell in your body is different, right? And it serves a different function. You know, the the, the cells that make up your fingernail or the tip of your finger are very different from the cells that are in your kidney. There's a difference in your cells. I mean, your body's made up of all these different cells, all these different parts. Your finger is different from your ear, is different from your brain stem. It's, It's all different. But do you know that every cell in your body has a common DNA code? Every cell in your body has something that every other cell in your body has. And it links it together, and it makes it unique, and it makes it part of your body. Even so, there's a lot of diversity in the body of Christ. You have a different job to do than I have to do, than they have to do, than they have to do. Everybody has a different purpose, a different role, a different function, a different character. But we all have the image of Jesus Christ. We have the same DNA code within us. And might I say, when we're just marveling at the marvelous diversity within the body of Christ, can we just say that it's okay to be different in the body of Christ? Good heavens! Sometimes I see Christians that they think that it should be the first church of the Stepford wives or something. You know, everybody should be the same. Everybody should just, you know, everybody should have the same personality. You know, look, we know you're weird. We love you anyway. It's fine. It's great. It's no problem. We're all different. It's all right. It's not, you know, people are still, like, everybody should have the same personality. You know what drives me crazy? Is that everybody should be happy all the time. Happy, happy, happy. Should all be happy. Hey, be happy all the time. You know what? We're just not happy all the time. It's like, brother, what's wrong? Nothing's wrong. I'm just not bubbling over with happiness right now. Leave me alone. It's okay. We can be different. It's not like there's some cookie cutter up there and we all have to be the same, this kind of rigid thing. It's all right. We all have the image of Jesus Christ written upon us. We're all growing up in the same image. You be everything that the Lord wants you to be in your part. I'll be everything the Lord wants me to be in my part. And even though it's very different, God will make it all work together in a glorious, glorious way. Now he's going on, he's explaining here even more, verse 15. He says, if the foot should say... Because I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? Can't you see? Isn't this brilliant, the illustration Paul makes? He goes, the foot saying, well, you know, I'm not a hand. The hands, they get all the good work. Foot saying, you should see me trapped down here. It stinks in here, the foot says. <laughs> then this guy ever heard a Doctor shoal? That's what your foot would say. And he's letting one of my toenails get ingrown. What's going on here? Oh, the hands, that's where the glamorous work is. Then the hands are like saying, Oh man, are you kidding me? You know, I just shelled out that money. Do you know where that money's been? You don't know where it's been. It's like I got the dirty work all day like you see, all the different parts of the body could complain about their part. Oh, they got it so good, I got it so bad. They're really part of the body, I'm just marginal. No. He goes on in verse 16. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them in the body, just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. Well, friends, if the foot felt or declared itself not part of the body because it wasn't a hand, the foot would be foolish and the foot would be mistaken. Your diversity, your uniqueness does not disqualify you as part of the body of Christ. Now, I know Satan loves to hammer people over the head with this one. You walk in here to church, you go, know, man, there's nobody like me here. You know? Nobody has my kind of situation. Nobody has my kind of person. Nobody has my kind of thing. There's nobody like me here. And then you think, well, I guess I'm not a part of this group. Do you see how you're buying into the foot, saying it's not a hand and it's not part of the body? Yeah, you're not like anybody else here. That's why we need you. That's why you do belong here, not why you don't. Oh, how Satan loves to make Christians feel so isolated and alone and separate them. And, oh, else. But it's just as foolish and just as mistaken as the foot saying, well, I'm not a hand, I'm not part of the body. You see, Paul is putting the question in the mouth of the person who feels excluded from the body. It's as if some of the Corinthian Christians were saying, well, I don't have this certain spiritual gift. I guess I'm not part of the body of Jesus Christ. After all the hands and the eyes, they have all the glamorous work. So Paul wants Christians who feel that they're excluded to know that they are indeed members of the body and that the the times when they sense that they're not part of the body, they're just being as foolish as the foot or the ear who feels excluded. Yet the, the same principle also can be stated towards those who desire to exclude other people from the body of Christ yeah, sure. Sometimes the foot says, well, I guess I'm not part of the body because I'm not a hand, right? You guys know that feeling, right? But isn't it true that sometimes the hand looks at the foot and says, you're not part of the body. You're not a hand. This is where the real action is for God. It's with the hands, buddy. And I don't know what you're doing. And the the hand is all depressed. The hand saying there's only two of us and there's so much work to do. No, no, no. You don't exclude other people. Paul could have just as well said, the hand cannot say the foot is not of the body because it is not a hand. Paul wants Christians who might exclude others because they don't appreciate their place in the body. He says, hey, you appreciate the fact that we're all one body. Now, friends, notice what he says here, too, in verse 17. He says, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? Friends, Not only is this diversity in the body of Christ acceptable, it's essential. The body cannot work properly if all are hands, or if all are eyes. The body must have different parts or gifts, or it would not work effectively together. Oh, friends, we're not here, listen, we're not here like some corny diversity training thing, where, you know, you just learn to teach how to, Tolerate diversity or this, that. Forget it. It's nothing to be tolerated. It's nothing to just be accepted in the church. Friends, it's essential. Why? Why? Now, y- you may be resenting it. Let me say, why did God make me a foot and them a hand? It's the hands that got all the action or, or the eyes. Yeah, that's where the glamour is. I'm just an ear. What good am I for? You know, nobody, I, I never get to face the action that ears say. I'm always on the side. It's the eyes. They got the glamour spot. Why? Why does God make a foot a foot and an eye a eye and a hand a hand? Do you see that in verse 18? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. You want to whine about it? Go whine to God. He's the one who sets you there. Don't blame me. Don't blame anybody else. Talk to God about it. And by the way, this also means that the hand can take no pride in being a hand. And the foot should take no shame in being a foot. Each one of them is serving at the pleasure of the designer. And don't you see the wisdom of the designer? Friends, you know how it works in the body? Check this out. In the body, nobody has everything, right? But everybody has something. That's how the body works. Nobody has everything, but everybody has something. What is going on here, verse 21. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the foot, the feet, I have no need of you. No, rather, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor, and our unpresentable parts have greater modesty. But our presentable parts have no need, but God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Friends, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Right now, before he was talking to that poor discouraged foot, right? But now he's talking to that proud I. Don't you go to the eye and say, to the hand, Mister I, and say I have no need of you. No. Matter of fact, he says here those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. We often consider a part of our body to be unnecessary, of very little importance, until it's hurt. Right? That pinky toe of yours. Is there anything less, you know? meaningful in your body in that dumb old pinky toe. Well oh, yeah you get it smashed or stubbed or the toenail racked on it. You see how insignificant it is. Or let's go even deeper. You know, when's the last time you honored your pancreas? Right? Now talk about something that doesn't receive any attention. You haven't thought about your pancreas the whole last year. You know there you are. Sliding your pancreas you, at least your feet, you know, you wash them. At least your feet, you know, you ladies, you're painting your toenails, you're getting the pedicures, right? You're fixing up all these parts of your body, you're spending time on them. You know, you're fixing everything up, you buy clothes for them. You've never done anything for your pancreas. <laughs> Nothing. You don't bestow any honor on it. But you know what? Which could you sooner live without, your foot or your pancreas? You start taking away those organs all them, take them away one by one. Sooner or later, you're gone. You don't bestow any honor on them, but they're more essential. Do you know that's how it is in the body of Christ? You know, sure, some parts of the body are out front, and visible. Wow, look at that. Look at the hands. Boy, you really see the hands. Boy, they're really doing a lot. They must be the most important part of the body. No, they're not, are they? And friends, in a church body, some of the people that you never ever see or know of or will know of, they're like the pancreas, they're like the heart, you never see them, but they are essential for the survival of the body. And if you were to take them away, you'd hurt the church more than if you took away the prominent, the visible people. You see, on the less honorable We bestow greater honor. The parts of our body normally covered by clothes are often considered less honorable, but we give them greater honor by clothing them so carefully. So friends, God has composed the body that even if somebody feels like they're a hidden or an unglamorous member of the body of Christ, God knows how to bestow honor on you. Receive the honor that comes from God. Why? He says, verse 25, that there should be no schism in the body. So we shouldn't be divided. We should all be unified. The pride of the honorable member is checked and the shame of the less honorable member is checked. Why? Notice it here, verse 25, that the members should have the same care for one another. You know what I love about this? I just want to love about the Bible. We've been talking theologically, right? Very theologically. You know, principles and ideas in this now paul brings it right home and he says you know what because this whole body picture is true you better care for each other i love this about the bible you know some people think that paul should have or a lot of preachers today they wouldn't mess around with all this body stuff that paul's talking about he'd just stand before him and say hey care for one another right you just care but paul says no i want to tell him why I want to tell them why we got to care for one another, why it's true and right before God that we have this care. Friends, the the parts of the body work together. The eyes and the ears do not only serve themselves, they serve the whole body. The hands just don't feed themselves, they feed the whole body. The hands defend the whole body. The heart doesn't just supply blood for itself. It pumps it out to the whole body. Now, sometimes there is a part of our body which only serves itself. It doesn't do anything for any other part of the body. It doesn't contribute. It only takes, and it only cares about feeding and growing itself. Do you know what we call that part of our body? cancer. Friends, don't be a cancer in the body of Christ. God wants you and has placed you to be a blessing to other people. Charles Spurgeon said this, I want every member of this church to be a worker. We do not want any drones. If there are any of you who want to eat and drink and do nothing, there are plenty of places elsewhere where you can do it. There are empty pews about in abundance. Go out and fill them for we do not want you every christian who is not a bee is a wasp the most quarrelsome persons are the most useless and they who are the most happy are peaceable are generally those who are doing the most for christ friends don't be a cancer don't be a taker be a giver and you'll find that god will give you more than you can bear so he goes on here now verse 27 Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. And God has appointed these in the church. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, variety of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the best gifts... And yet I show you a more excellent way. Paul is summing up his previous point. He says, listen, you're the body of Christ. You're a body together. But you're each members individually. You each have your own function, your own niche, your own gifts, your own capabilities. And he says some of these capabilities, some of these places, some of these members. He talks about apostles. These are sort of special ambassadors of the church. Now, Paul and others in his day, like Peter and James and John, they had a unique apostolic authority which will never be uh, repeated because the foundation of the church has already been laid. However, God today still has his special ambassadors in the church today. They don't have the same authority as the original apostles, but yet God still has his special ambassadors. Though, might I say... It's just been my observation. I'm not going to lay this down as an absolute law. But there should always be a huge flag in your mind whenever anybody's calling themselves an apostle. Just just let that let the warning sign flash in your mind. I mean, I do believe God has his special ambassadors in the church today. You can't look at a guy like Billy Graham and say that God hasn't used him as a special ambassador to the church. He certainly has. Friends, I think that anybody that God has called to be as an apostle today would have the sense to never take the title upon themselves. So just always let it be a warning sign to you whenever anybody's talking about themselves being an apostle. Except myself, of course, if I ever claim... No, are you kidding me? If I were as an uh, apostle, David, get out of here, just run. Just run from this church, just run, if I ever do that. Oh, good heavens. The same is kind of true for the next one, if you notice here in verse 28. First Apostles, second prophets. Now, these are those who are particularly called to speak forth for God with the gift of prophecy. Now, again, there was a unique foundational role to this gift as well. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, talks about God laying the foundation of the church on the apostles and the prophets. But God still raises up those to speak to the church and the world with a special blessing and a power today. But again, I'm always very suspicious of people who claim or receive the title of prophet. You want to go around being known as a prophet? All right, then we're going to judge you according to the standard of a prophet. You know what that is? 100% accuracy. And if you mess it, why don't you start running? Because you deserve to be stoned. And I don't mean that in the intoxicated kind of way. I mean that in the kind of buried under a pile of rocks kind of way. Friends, that's a biblical test for prophets. So, again, while I think that God has special people to speak forth for him today, I'd always just be suspicious of anybody who would go around calling themselves a prophet. So, you'll never hear it from here. You'll never hear Apostle David. You're never going to hear Prophet David. Good heavens, no. Then he goes on here, verse uh, 28. Uh, First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles... Then gifts of healings helps administration's variety of tongues. Well, we've talked about teachers and workers of miracles, and, and uh, uh, he goes on to talk about uh, gifts of healings. We've talked about those previously in the chapter. I want you to notice in verse 28, he says, helps. You know what that is? But first of all, notice, there it is, you know. Oh, oh, well, they they have the gift of miracles. They have the gift of healings. You know, wow, spectacular. It's time to put them in the powder blue tuxedo and send them on the road show, right? (laughs) I want you to see that in God's view, somebody who has the gift of helps is just as precious before him. Right, it's not spectacular, but it's a lot more necessary to the body of Christ. It's just somebody who helps or assists others in doing the work of the Lord. They're saying, listen, I don't feel called to be out front. I don't feel called to be prominent. I just want to help somebody who is. I'll help them. Man, that's precious before the Lord. Another one from Spurgeon. You know, Bible teaching without a quote from Charles Spurgeon. That's like a day without sunshine. <laughs> Spurgeon, on those with the gift of helps, he says, quote, It strikes me that they were not persons who had any official standing, but that they were only moved by the natural impulse and the divine life within them to do anything and everything which would assist either pastor, teacher, or deacon in the work of the Lord. They are the sort of brethren who are useful anywhere and can always fill a gap and uh, and who are only too glad when they find that they can make themselves servable to the church of God in any capacity whatever. You you ever hear this book that John Bunyan wrote uh, called Pilgrim's Progress? It's an ancient Christian classic written hundreds of years ago. And in it, he uses allegorical figures. The the main character in the book is a guy named Christian. And it's a Christian on his Christian life. And he has all these experiences and all these things. And everything is given these names that describe what it is. And one day, Christian's on his pilgrimage uh, to the the heavenly city. And uh, he finds himself mired in the... Slough of despond. He's in quicksand, and he's despondent. Well, there he is. He's mired in it. You know who comes along to give him assistance? Help. That's his name. Hi, I'm Help. I'm here to get you out of the quicksand of despond. And now, now, he pulls him out, and he becomes very dear to him. Spurgeon said, dear, very dear to us, must ever be the hand that helped us out of the depth of the mire when there was no standing. And while we ascribe all the glory to the God of grace, we cannot but love most affectionately the instrument he sent to be the means of our deliverance. Friends, is there somebody who came along and you are in the quick span of despair And they reached their hands out. And you know, when you're in quicksand, you can't get any footing, right? That's why you're sinking down. But they had footing, and they came and extended their hand to you, and they pulled you up out of there. You know what? You love that person, don't you? Because they extended their hand to help you in that time of need. Spurgeon goes on in this great sermon that he preached uh, to describe the qualities of someone who's effective in the gift of helps. Here's some of the qualities he listed. Check these out. He said, you need a tender heart to really care. You need a quick eye to see the need. You need a quick foot to get to the needy person. You need a loving face to cheer them and bless them. You need a firm foot so that you will not fall yourself when you're trying to help them. You need a strong hand to grip the needy with. And you need a humble, bent back so that you can reach down and get them. Oh, that God would raise up those who have the gift of help's. And then he goes on here in this text to go on, and he talks about people who speak with the gift of tongues. Now, we talked a lot about the gift of tongues last week. We'll talk more about it in coming weeks, especially when we get to chapter 14. But this particular gift of tongues that Paul is speaking about, Paul's plain meaning here is that the gift of tongues is not for every believer. I mean, check it out. He says, uh, Are all apostles, verse 29, Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles? Do I have gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret Friends, the answer there is no. Just as much as all are not prophets or all are not teachers or all are not workers of miracles, do all speak with tongues? No. Now, friends, great damage has been done in the church by promoting the gift of tongues as necessary to really live as a Christian or as being the evidence of the Holy Spirit's presence. This has caused many Christians to seek the gift of tongues or even to fake the gift of tongues, often only to assure themselves or to assure other peoples that they really have the Spirit of God. Friends, the gift of tongues is a communicative gift. It's an ability that God gives you to communicate with Him in a way that goes beyond your own understanding. You don't understand what you're saying to God, but God does. Now, there are some people who honestly, and without any kind of, you know, meaning anything bad with it, they say, that gives useless to me. Why would I need to communicate to God in a way that I don't understand? Friends, I say to people that they should only seek God for the gift of tongues when they feel a lack in their ability to communicate with God, when they feel that they can't communicate with God in their own intellect, in their own understanding. If you don't feel any limitation at all, then don't worry about it. But when one feels hindered in their ability to talk with God using their given language, they can and they should ask God for the empowering to communicate with him in a language which he understands, but which may surpass my understanding. If someone feels satisfied with their ability to communicate with God, there's no need for the gift of tongues. And it shouldn't be desired until someone wants communication with God that goes beyond their understanding. And we'll talk a lot more about this in coming weeks. But look at the last part here in verse 31. He says, But earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. Friends, the best gifts. It's not wrong to seek God for gifts, but what are the best gifts? Well, I know what the best gifts are. The best gifts are the ones that make me look the most spiritual right? Lord, don't give me the gift of helps. That could be sweeping the parking lot. Lord, give me the gift of miracles. That's what I want, God. No, that's not the best gift. Do you know what the best gift is? I believe that the best gift is the one that's needed at the time. Isn't that the best gift? Whatever the Holy Spirit wants to do. And that's the heart you should have. Friends, Don't be afraid of what God can do in you or through you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Just make yourself available. Say, Lord, I want the best gifts. If there's a need here tonight that you want to meet through me, naturally or supernaturally, here I am, Lord. Now, you can make yourself available to God for that, can't you? Some of you are saying, no, I can't. No, I can't. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. God can do it in your life. Just let the Lord do it. And so just receive whatever it is that the Lord would have to give you here this evening. Earnestly desire the best gifts. And then he says, and yet I show you a more excellent way. Now, in chapter 13, Paul is going to explain the more excellent way. And you know what the most excellent way is, the more excellent way? It's a way of living that doesn't focus on the gifts. It focuses on love. And isn't this where many Christians get lost? They get excited about the supernatural work of God, and then they start to focus upon it. Friends, God doesn't want your focus there. He wants it to be on him and on his love. Do you know what the gifts are? They're merely ways that we can express and receive love from God and love to one another. You know what the gifts are? They're containers. And what's in the container is what's important. Not the containers themselves. You know, you walk into this warehouse and there's all these crates and boxes everywhere. And you walk in and go, wow, boy, this place is loaded. You walk on, boy, wow, what an inventory. I can't believe it. You know, what do you, what do you have in all these? Oh, nothing. But look at our boxes. Look at our crates. And everybody go, dude, what's wrong here, man? You're showing off all that. You're all proud of the containers. It's what's in it that's important. Friends, when we put our focus on the gifts instead of the giver and his love, we're focusing on the container instead of what's in it. Let the, can I just say, let the Lord pick the container. We'll just be interested in receiving what he puts in it.